The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. The rest of us, talking to you, if you are a Christian, you're confident that, you're born again, you know Jesus, uh, you love the gospel, you love God's word, and you want to be obedient to him. One of the areas we need to be obedient is in the area of discipleship, so we better make sure we understand what discipleship really is. Because there is confusion, even in the Christian world, about discipleship. But I want to start with two questions that I want to ask all of us who are believers. Question number one is, who's discipling you? Think about that for a second. Who is discipling you? When I ask myself that question, I can think of some people. Some people by name. People that are currently in my life. Who is discipling you? I would propose that every Christian should be able to answer that question. Who is discipling you? That's basic in Scripture. Every Christian should be being discipled by someone. Who is discipling you? If you're a Christian and I ask you who's discipling you, you can't think of anybody. That is a huge problem. And so that's why we're talking about this today. Who is discipling you? Question number two, equally important, that we need to answer in our own heart, is who are you discipling? If you're a Christian, answer in your own mind and heart, who are you discipling? If you can't think of anybody or there's nobody in your life right now, that's another huge problem. So we need to look at those two questions and see what Scripture has to say about those. Because I would propose it's basic to Christianity, it's basic to the Bible, basic to the Christian life. Every Christian needs to be discipling someone, and every Christian needs to be discipled by someone. All the time. But the answers can vary. So, I mean, right now, maybe you're a Christian mom and you have children and they're younger. Priority number one for you as a mom is to be discipling your children. So, a mom, so, because some moms, Christians, mom think, oh, I'm not discipling anybody. Wait, don't you have like four kids? Yeah, but they don't count. No, your kids count. They're actually, they're the priority. So if you're a parent and you're a Christian, your answer should be, that should be the first answer is I am discipling my children. So don't forget that. That's a legitimate option. Um, Just wanted to highlight that because that one seems to come up a lot where the kids don't count. No, they do. It starts in your home, actually. If you can't disciple your own children, then you shouldn't be discipling or trying to disciple people in the church in other capacities. So it does start at home. So two very important questions. Who's discipling you and who are you discipling? Let's go ahead and look at uh, back to basics, what the Bible has to say about discipleship. Start at the very beginning, very basic, and that's number one, the meaning of discipleship. And the meaning put in there is uh, discipleship in the New Testament means a student, literally a learner, mathetes, mathetus, mathetuo, the verb in the Greek New Testament. It is a student, it is a learner, And another legitimate synonym is follower. But primarily it's a student or a pupil. That's at the most basic meaning of the word. A student, a pupil. And in and of itself it doesn't have an attachment of loyalty uh, on the surface. That's defined by the context. So there can be all kinds of different... um, 
disciples. But that's just the basic. So primarily, it's uh, one person is communicating information to another person. They're uh, intellectual information and knowledge, but also practical information is being communicated through the life as well. So it's not just lecturing, but it's learning uh, from someone in all different ways. Now, I just want to briefly give you five examples of the way the word disciple is used in the New Testament. Just so you know, the word disciple, or the plural, is used 265 times at least in the New Testament. Interestingly, it is only found in the four Gospels in the book of Acts. And there are five different ways that the word disciple is used. The common denominator always is that it does refer to a student, a pupil, a follower, a learner. But the nature of that follower can be different in each context. You can have, it's like I was a teacher for years in the classroom, and I'd have a classroom full of 25 students. These are my students. These are my pupils. These are my disciples. These are my followers. But yet, at any given time, there are followers that didn't like Mr. McManus. There were others that absolutely loved me. I was the greatest teacher. There were those that did well uh, in the class. There were others who were flunking. There were those who disagreed with I taught, whatever it was. And that's true of any teacher in any classroom. But they're all pupils. They're all disciples. They're all learners. But the relationship with the teacher is different depending upon the context and the relationship. So um, here are the five ways I'll just briefly give to you that disciple is used in the New Testament. There are, first one is the disciples of John the Baptist. Matthew nine fourteen is an example. So they were followers of John. They learned from John. He was their main teacher. Uh, number two, disciples of the Pharisees in Mark 2.18. So the Pharisees, they had their own followers and disciples and students. So disciples of John the Baptist, disciples of the Pharisees. There is this, the general crowd, disciples, followers of Jesus. That's number three, the disciples of Jesus, meaning the mass crowds of people. So when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount preached to 5,000 disciples, not apostles, 5,000 plus disciples, Learners, they were all over the map. Some totally agreed with him. Some were ignorant. Some were committed to him. Some would bail on him later. But they were all called disciples, followers, learners, pupils. Many of them followed him for months and months and months, even a couple of years, wherever he went. Just big crowds, uh, the disciples of Jesus. Good example, John 6, 60, Jesus is teaching, and it refers to the crowds, large groups of people called the disciples of Jesus. And then Jesus is starting to get a little controversial. He's rebuking them for their sin. He says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Then they're starting, some of them are starting to get kind of riled up. Then they start debating and arguing with him publicly. Then he exposes their sin and challenges them. And then it says that some of the disciples, this was hard for them to hear. They couldn't handle what Jesus the Master was teaching them. And so the conclusion was in John 6, 66, it said, from this point on, some of his disciples followed him no longer. It's not talking about the apostles. These were people who were just followers. Oh, he's the rabbi. He's got some good teaching. He provides free food. Every once in a while you get a miracle. I like this guy. Some of his disciples followed him no longer. So in the Gospels, disciple is not synonymous with being a true born-again Christian or believer. Important. The context defines the meaning of disciple in the four Gospels. 
And then, so you got the disciples of John, the disciples of the Pharisees, the disciples of Jesus, the big crowds. And then, uh, number four, the disciple, the word disciple refers to the twelve apostles at times. Um, Matthew 10.1, Luke 6, Matthew 10.1, where it calls the twelve apostles the disciples. And they are interchangeable and synonymous in that passage. But that was rarely true. But there, it is true. And then in, in the Gospel of Luke, it makes a distinction between the two. It says, Jesus prayed all night. He gathered all of his disciples to himself. And from among them, he chose 12 to be apostles. He gathered all the disciples and from them chose 12 to be apostles. So the point being, the disciple is not synonymous with apostle. We say the 12 disciples. That's legit because a couple of times in the Gospels, it refers to the 12 disciples. But not always. More technically and specifically, it was the 12 apostles. All the apostles were disciples. Not all the disciples were apostles. So the disciples of John, the disciples of the Pharisees, disciples of Jesus, the 12 apostles, and then number five is in the book of Acts. Um, about 30 times the word disciple or disciples occurs in the book of Acts, and just about every time it refers to Christians in the early church. So that's a distinct meaning from in the Gospels. It's pretty consistent in the book of Acts. It's referring to the church. Followers of Christ, those who are a part of the church. There's an exception in Acts 19 where it refers to the disciples of John the Baptist. But about every other time, it's referring to Christians, which is a little more specific than the way it's used in the Gospels. So those are five usages of the word disciple. And the point is, it, in all five cases, it refers to following someone. You are a learner. Uh, you're open to instruction. You want to follow your master, whoever that teacher might be. And so the New Testament, Jesus in particular, actually proposes a theology of discipleship where they take a generic term and make it more specific and spiritual and Christian so that by the time we get to the book of Acts, discipleship and disciple is synonymous with being a Christian and growing in the Christian life. So that's what we mean by discipleship. It's growing and learning in Jesus Christ during the course of this life. Uh, a simple way of stating it, maybe the best words of discipleship defined would be Matthew 4.19 where Jesus said, follow me. What was he doing? It was a formal invitation to follow him as the master, as the teacher. I'll be your rabbi. I will instruct you. I will disciple you. I will teach you. Follow me. Follow me. Be one of my disciples. Listen to what I say. Do what I say. Follow what I do. Watch my modeling. Interact with me. Have a relationship with me at some level. As we pursue a relationship with God, that's what Jesus meant. Follow me. I will give you the lead. That's discipleship. So it's following a master, following a teacher. It's following a mentor. That's another word for it. Discipleship, other phrases, synonyms might be, who's, who's your mentor? Who's your spiritual mentor? Do you have any spiritual friendships? Do you have any spiritual accountability? These are all overlapping in their meaning. And Jesus said, follow me. That's discipleship. The Apostle Paul came along in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, and he replicated that definition by Jesus of discipleship. So Paul perpetuated discipleship as a Christian discipline. When Paul called on the Corinthians, follow me. Follow me. I will be your example as I also am a, I'm an example of Christ. Follow me the way I follow Jesus. That's discipleship. Looking to a mentor. 
uh, probably the best definition on a practical level that I heard in my Christian life that had such an impact on me when I was 19-year-old, brand-new Christian. And a pastor on the radio defined discipleship this way. He said, discipleship is simply befriending another Christian, someone who has a little more experience or knowledge than you, and they walk through life with you, and they interpret life and all of its incidents for you through the lens of the Bible. So discipleship is walking through life with a fellow Christian, and along the way, all the trials of life and the vicissitudes of life and the blessings of life and the unexpectedness of life. And as you're walking through life, we struggle and we need somebody to help us and encourage us. And the discipler interprets all these different scenarios for the disciplee. From God's point of view, the Word of God, here's what God thinks about this crisis in your life. That's what a discipler does. So it's a beautiful day. Just walking through life with somebody and helping helping them along the way interpret life from God's point of view. Because we do, we need that help. We need a different perspective. So that's the meaning of discipleship. Let's go on to number two, uh, the mandate for discipleship. That's just the Great Commission. So look at Matthew 28. I love what one, one author said, pastor, who had some military experience and background, and they said that because uh, when you're in the military, you can get a lot of different commands and orders from on high and decrees that are issued. But sometimes those can change with time. And sometimes you have to jettison uh, the main command and make a new one because life is dynamic and war changes. And so they were saying that the most important command in the military is the last command that was given by the general or whoever's in charge. The most important command, the most urgent command, is the last command given. And if you apply that to Jesus, that would be Matthew 28. The last command that he gave his church before he left, he gave many and that's why we call it the Great Commission. And that's Matthew 28. Let's look at it. So Jesus is about to ascend, go back into heaven. He's gathered his disciples together, including the apostles. Uh, he's trained them. He has equipped them. He's about to empower them with the Holy Spirit. And he gives them this mandate, which is the Great Commission for the apostles who had found the church. So this is the Great Commission for the church. Has been for 2,000 years. Doesn't change. It's still the Great Commission for us as a church, major priority of what we should be doing. And what is it? Verse 18, Jesus came up and said to his disciples, saying, all authority has been given to me from the Father in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Trick question, verses 18 through 20, if I were to ask you, what is the main command that Jesus gives there? And you had to pick one, what would it be? 18 through 20, what is the main command? What is the main verb? Based on your English version of the Bible, you might say, uh, let's see, how about go? The heart of the Great Commission is go. Go into the world, evangelize. That's the heart of the Great Commission. And I would say, <clears throat> wrong answer. Because actually the main verb, go, by the way, in the Greek text is not even technically a verb. It's a modifier of a verb. So the main verb in 18 through 20 is make disciples. And, it's, and in English, it's make is two words. In Greek, it's just one word Jesus said. Make disciples. So what is the great commission of the church? It is to make disciples. And then you got those three verb modifiers. Well, how do you do that? Well, they go in order. By going, that's the literal translation, make disciples. How do we do that? By going. That is evangelism. 
Starts there. Go and preach the gospel. Spread the seed. Inevitably, people will be saved. That's step one of making disciples. But you're not done when people get saved. So the goal of the church isn't to get people saved. That's step one. Well, what's the other? There's two more steps. Make disciples how? By going, beginning of verse 19. Then people get saved. Then what do we do? Middle of verse 19. Baptizing, another participle used as a modifier of the verb make disciples. So go and evangelize. Then when people get saved, then you baptize them. What does that mean? That means bring them into the fold. Formalize their relationship with the local church through the ordinance of baptism. As a symbol that they have been saved. Identifying them with the local church. That's the only thing Peter and the early church knew was being, you get saved, you get baptized. In the local, by the way, if you're a Christian and you have not been baptized, Lord willing, we're going to have a baptism service in the month of February slash March. And I would invite anybody, if you are interested in baptism, you can put it on a white card, come talk to me so we can plan that. And what is the prerequisite of getting baptized? It's just being a Christian. It's being a Christian, uh, knowing Jesus, knowing the gospel. Well, I, I, <laughs> people come, well, I'd like to get baptized. I'm a Christian, but I'm still addicted to cigarettes. So I'm going to wait till I'm not addicted to cigarettes anymore, and then I'll think about baptism. So, well, how long could that take? Well, another 30 years. Well, let's uh, get baptized, and while you're smoking, the cigarette will go out in the water, and that'll be symbolic. Anyway, um, no, the prerequisite is knowing Jesus and being able to articulate the gospel, not eradicating all of your sinful habits, because that will never happen in this lifetime. So we make disciples by evangelizing, and then those that get saved, we baptize. And then, then what do we do? How else do we make disciples? We're not done yet. We're making disciples. So notice that going and evangelizing and people getting saved, that's a one-time event for the person that gets saved. Then they get baptized. That is a one-time event. So is discipleship over when those two things happen? No. Discipleship is lifelong, and that's point number three, verse 20 in Matthew 28. And that is teaching them. There's the third participle modifying the verb make disciples. How do we make disciples? Three things. By going and evangelizing that they might be saved. By baptizing them and bringing them into the local church after they're saved. And then for the rest of their Christian life, they are, we are to be teaching them. That is discipleship. Because that's what discipleship means. To a learner who is taught. And Jesus said, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. How long does it take to teach someone all that Jesus taught during his lifetime or that is in the Bible? It takes a lifetime and more. That's why discipleship never ends in this life. So discipleship is ongoing, continual, the rest of your Christian life. So every single Christian is in the discipleship process somewhere on the spectrum, and it never ends until we meet Jesus. So the Great Commission is the mandate for discipleship, and the emphasis being on teaching them all things. None of us has arrived. Let's go on to number three. After uh, the, the meaning of discipleship, the mandate for discipleship, now the model of discipleship. Simply, who is the model for discipleship? Is Jesus and the apostles. It's really that simple. The word disciple, disciples, occurs 265 times in the Gospels because it's mostly mentioned by Jesus with reference to his ministry and also in the book of Acts with reference to the, the ministry of the apostles. So they are the model and the only model in Scripture. Now, there are people who invent their own models of discipleship and perpetuate those models and propagate them and showcase them and put them in books and preach on them and talk about them, and they are misleading or they lack balance. We'll talk about that in a second. But uh, let's just keep it simple. 
the model is Jesus and the apostles. And we just study what they did and how they used the term and what their example was, and we just follow that. And if I were to summarize it, well, what was the model of Jesus and the apostles? It's, it was threefold. It was balanced, beautifully balanced. Because if you only have one of the three, then you're circumventing the process, truncating the process. It's not fully balanced. And here's how Jesus discipled. Jesus had macro discipleship. That's the first one, macro. That's to the crowds. So in Matthew 5, 1 and following, and many times in the Gospels, Jesus preached to his disciples. Uh, there were 5,000 people there, and Jesus taught his disciples. Jesus was speaking to the multitudes, his disciples, and he said, and he preached truth and taught truth, and he ministered literally to them. So there's macro discipleship. That is on a grand corporate scale. So this is a form of discipleship. Anytime we are in a large group, hearing the Word of God being taught, and it's legit, that is a form and one component of discipleship because we are in a learning mode from the Word of God being taught. And that's why, same thing with the Apostle Paul, he modeled this. 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen. he writes, when you assemble together as a church, he's talking about the large corporate crowd of believers, to hear the Word of God. That's discipleship. It's one form of discipleship. Is macro discipleship. Then the second kind of discipleship that Jesus and the apostles modeled after macro was small group discipleship. So Jesus would teach the crowds and the multitudes, then he was done there. He would take his, it'd say he'd take the 12 disciples and he left. He took the 12 disciples to go pray. He took the 12 disciples and they went to travel. He took the 12 disciples and modeled ministry for them. They watched how he prayed. They watched how he uh, interacted with people. And he spent and invested many, many, many hours, months, and years in these 12 men. So that's small group discipleship. And then even within that small group of the 12, there were times where he would take three of them away, Peter, James, and John. He's with the disciple, the 12 apostles, and then he'd take Peter, James, and John and say, hey, hey guys, let's go over here. And then he would teach those three guys a very specific lesson the other nine guys didn't get exposed to. This is small group discipleship. So when we disciple, we've got to keep the balance like Jesus did. Macro discipleship, small group discipleship, and then finally number three is one-on-one -on -one discipleship. And Jesus, again, was the master of this. The Apostle Paul was the master of this. Where at, at any given time, you've got somebody in your life that you have a relationship with, a spiritual identity with, spiritual common ground in the gospel, and one of you is discipling the other. And Jesus did that with Peter. He did it with John. He did it with his other apostles where he found one-on-one -on -one time uh, during the course of his ministry, we need to do the same thing. So when you think discipleship today, I think many times we just think it's that one-dimensional one-on-one. Who's your discipler? Some, just one person. That's, that's not a balanced biblical perspective. When you just relegate it to one person, how, how stilted and unbalanced that would be if you just had one discipler in your... Who's your discipler? It's this guy. He tells me what to do. I obey. His perspective matters more than... Anyway, so I, I've seen that. That's not healthy. I, I'm reminded of this in the academic world, in the theological academic world. You hear this all the time. Here's prestigious professor so-and-so. He, he, he went to uh, Manchester and he studied his PhD under F.S. Bruce. Really? So he went to seminary for five years and only studied from one guy? How, how limiting is that? How narrow and myopic is that? But you hear it all the time. As a matter of fact, at my first college I went to, theological institution in college, and I was a religious studies major, and I had these PhDs that I was studying under in theology, 
And they, they didn't hesitate to talk about their theological pedigree all the time. And one of them was, yes, I went to Germany and I studied my PhD under Wolfhart Pannenberg. And he'd say that all, that all year long. Wolfhart Pannenberg, okay. One guy. I thought that was impressive at the time. And then the other one was, I studied under F.F. Bruce. Okay. And then, then I got privileged to go to the master's college and seminary. And I was thinking about that recently. Man, how long ago was that? That was a long time ago. And so who was influential in my life when I went to these academic theological institutions? And I thought of like 23 professors at the master's college. I'm a little biased. I loved every professor I had at the master's college. And they made an indelible imprint in my life. So I had 23 people I studied under. Take that. Uh, and then I went to the master's seminary and started thinking about, I loved every professor I had at the master's seminary. And every one of them had something special and different to transfer into my life. So it wasn't one dimensional and just one guy. So think about Dr. Roscoe. Man, he was the man of prayer. He, he taught us how to pray. And then there was Dr. Thomas. He was the exegete par excellence. We learned Greek and how to exegete from Dr. Thomas. And then there was uh, Dr. Zemek, who was Mr. Objective Thinker. Just what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say? Was his point. Of, and I just, man, I took that and owned that. That's where I got it from. So I, I think about the way I am, the way I view ministry, the way I view the Bible. A lot of it can be traced back to many people. And these were disciplers of me. And that's in the formal school setting. But over the course of my 30 years of being a Christian, there's always been several people in my life who were discipling me, making an impact, not always formal, rarely formal, informal, but having an influence, praying with me, meeting with me, teaching me, interpreting life for me, holding me accountable, having a personal relationship with me. So I've always had many disciplers, and right now I have many disciplers. And that's the way it should be. And that was Jesus' model. So that is the model of discipleship. Let's go on to number four, um, the methods of discipleship. The methods, well, it's from Christ's teaching is the answer. What, what are the methods? From Christ's teaching. So we saw that in Matthew twenty-eight twenty. You fulfill the Great Commission, which is making disciples by teaching believers all things I have commanded, present tense, for the rest of their life. So the method is teaching people what Jesus said, teaching people what the Bible says, really, is the point of emphasis. So that's the method, Christ's teaching. Well, to break it down, wow, that's a lot of stuff. Can you be more specific? Well, yeah, I'll try. Okay, um, at the heart of it, the method of Jesus' discipleship, at the heart of it, is teaching. There's got to be objective data transfer from mouth to mind. Because that's what the word means. Learner, student. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to learn something. I'm ready to think Christianity is a religion of the mind, of thinking. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. Disciple means a student, a learner. Jesus was rabbi. That means teacher. That means objective data. That means divine truth. That is transferred. It is explained. So that's got to happen in disciple. That's step number one. The method of Jesus is teaching universal, objective, binding, divine revelation. For us today, it's teaching the Bible. Now, if you're in a relationship with a fellow Christian and you got, you got an accountability group, now that's not bad to have an accountability group. But if your accountability group or your accountability meeting 
is just where you and another person just get together and all you do is you talk and you moan about the problems of life and maybe you'll say a prayer over a meal, but that's it. And there's no exchange of biblical truth in the relationship in an ongoing, then that's not really discipleship. That's an accountability meeting. And those can be helpful. Actually, we need to be encouraged. Scripture says encourage one another. So that is needed. But in terms of discipleship, at some point, the Word of God has got to be paramount. That's got to drive everything. That's got to inter- So you can get together and talk about your problems with each other, but then those problems have to be defined from Scripture about how to deal with those problems. So Scripture's got to drive discipleship. That's all there is to it. Otherwise, you just have an accountability partner, but not really a discipleship partner. So that was the method of Jesus. The Word of God enters in as the priority, drives and interprets everything. Also, prayer prayer is a a major component. You look at Jesus and His discipleship, large group, small group, one-on-one, the element of prayer was always involved with the Lord Jesus. Praying with His disciples, praying for His disciples, uh, bathing everything in prayer, seeking God and wisdom through prayer. So in your discipleship relationships, you need to have the Word of God being taught and driving the conversation and your relationship, but also it's got to be bathed in prayer. I'll pray for you, you pray for me. What can we pray about together? That's discipleship. It's not just talking to one another. There's nothing wrong with just talking to one another. But I'm talking about biblical discipleship after the model and pattern of Jesus. Um, Another thing to consider is all these fulfilling all that Jesus taught. And I think the one another's are primary in terms of importance in a discipleship relationship. Uh, one of our elders went through a Bible study and then came up and actually found, surprised me. I didn't know there were over 30 one another commands in the New Testament. It's like, whoa. And wrote them all out and delineated them. And these are imperatives. These are commands for Christians. We need to be doing this. And they're, uh, they're reciprocal. They're mutual. They imply that you're in a relationship with somebody else. So if you're a Christian, we are obligated to pursue First of all, to know the one another's, pursue the one another's, apply the one another's, fulfill the one another's, hold each other accountable with the one another's. But the prerequisites are that you're in a relationship with a fellow believer to do that. And that is the heart of discipleship. So uh, pursuing the one another's is a great goal in a discipleship relationship. Some of the one another. Oh, also, uh, discipleship has to happen in the context of a personal relationship. Now, in, in this day and age of technology and living in the virtual world, that's becoming less and less of a priority and even a reality. I was talking to somebody last week. They were telling me that uh, they have good friends. That they go to church. You know where they go to church? In their living room every Sunday. Uh, watching preachers on the Internet and listening to them on the radio in the convenience of their own home. So they don't go to a local church. They don't interact with people because they don't like people. And they have church at home just listening to a sermon. Thinking, well, that's not really going to church. Uh, and that's not fulfill- How can you fulfill the one another's if you're not going to church interacting with fellow saints, which is at the heart of discipleship? And you've got to... Jesus uh, modeled that discipleship is always in the context of relationship with another believer or a group of believers or five other believers, small group. So it's in personal relationship. It has to be there. And so that means there's intimacy, there's vulnerability. These are all prerequisites. You can't have a legitimate discipleship relationship with somebody growing in the Lord, fulfilling the one another, if you don't have intimacy with one another at some level, and if you don't have vulnerability and honesty. You can't. You've got to be in a relationship with somebody. And there are different degrees and levels of relationship to fulfill that. 
But if you don't have vulnerability and honesty, and you keep people at arm's distance all the time, and you're the mystery man or the mystery woman, you can't do biblical discipleship. How in the world are we supposed to fulfill one another's like love one another in, in a real biblical sense, at a deep level, if you keep everybody at arm's length and you don't let anybody get into your life and what your problems are and what you're really thinking and what you really struggle with? How in the world do you fulfill the one another of rebuke one another if you're not allowed, if you don't let anybody into your life? Oh, I don't like confrontation. I don't want to be exposed. So I'm going to have the superficial Christian bubble. And you are denying biblical discipleship. How do you fulfill the one another in discipleship of forgive one another if you don't have a legitimate, close relationship with a fellow believer? So these are... These one another's are fulfilled at the deepest level of a relationship. And yet many just put up the shield and the guard and they don't let anybody into their life. And that, you know what, that's dangerous. That's when we, we become vulnerable. That's why That goes back to Genesis. Before the fall, before sin, God said, it is not good for the man, and that means any person to be alone, to live in isolation. It's not good. It is dangerous. It is deceptive. It is blinding. You are vulnerable to Satan, his attacks, self-destruction. That's why the book of Proverbs says, he who lives in isolation is a fool. Because it is so dangerous. And it's just absolutely contrary to what God expects of His people. God is a trinity. God is a social entity. God, for all eternity, has been intimately interacting at the Godhead level of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He created us in His image to do likewise, to be social, interactive, intimate beings with one another. That happens at the fullest in discipleship relationships that are biblical, fulfilling the one another's. So be aware of that. So when I go back to that question, who's discipling you? Who is in your life on a regular basis? Who is a Christian? Who is a friend? Someone you're honest with, vulnerable with on an ongoing basis that you, here's a key word, accountable to. That's one of the blessings of Christian marriage. If you are married and you're both Christians, there should be two-way discipleship going on there. Absolutely. Well, I thought only the husband disciples the wife. Well, I used to believe that until I got married. Then I realized, wow, I've learned a lot from my wife. And the key ingredient there is accountability. Whoa, can't get away with any of my sin when you live with somebody. And that's by God's design. Marriage. Who's discipling you? And then also, who are you discipling? Who are you investing? Look at this verse by the Apostle Paul. Uh, this is kind of a goal of discipling. One of the goals. Second uh, Timothy chapter... Two, Paul believed in discipleship. He modeled discipleship. You just follow Paul through the book of Acts. He's always, and even in his letters, he's always with people. He's never in isolation. He's dependent upon other saints. He loves dearly and intimately, whether it was Timothy, Titus, uh, so many others that he lists. He just had incredibly tight, close, trusted, intimate relationships. And at times that comes with risk. Where in the discipleship process, you will invest in somebody, you will entrust your soul to somebody, and then they will betray you. It happens. Don't be surprised by that. Well, why does that happen? It happened to Jesus, the perfect discipler. And one of his disciples that he prayed about and chose was named Judas. 
And Jesus discipled Judas for three years. And Judas betrayed. Judas was of the devil. So that's why when you read about the Apostle Paul, he had these uh, relationships and these intimate relationships where he poured his life into these people, into these men. And then in some of his epistles, it is revealed that they turned their back on him. They were hypocrites. They were professing Christians, but they weren't really Christians. They were wolves. They were enemies of Paul. They totally undermined him. They abandoned him. They hurt him deeply. So that happens. Yes, there is risk. That's why you need to pray to God, ask for his wisdom, ask for his leading in who you're going to get into a relationship with in terms of discipleship. But know that that's always a possibility. But you will even learn from that scenario. But going back to 2 Timothy, uh, the Apostle Paul, who was a master discipler, great example for us. What is the goal of discipleship? Well, some would say, well, the goal of discipleship is to make disciples. And I would say, well, actually, that's not good enough. So let's make it a little more specific. The goal of discipleship is to make disciple makers. So it's not the goal of discipleship is to make disciples. No, it's the goal of discipleship is to make disciple makers. Paul was the master. So look at Second Timothy chapter 2, where Paul modeled this. Uh, he's talking to Timothy. Timothy was a disciple of the apostle Paul. The book of Acts refers to disciples of Paul. Uh, Timothy was one of them. And so Paul was discipling Timothy in many ways. Uh, he had an intimate relationship with him, so much so that in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says he calls him my son. You see the beautiful intimacy and trust they had with one another, the vulnerability. They were family. This is a discipleship relationship. And it didn't just end between... It wasn't just Paul and Timothy and that was it. Okay, tick-tock, the game is locked. Nobody else can play. This is our crowd. Nobody else is invited. This is our holy huddle. That wasn't Paul's perspective. Timothy was just one of many that he was involved in a discipleship relationship with. And verse 1, 2 Timothy 2, You therefore, my son, Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And here's the discipleship verse in verse 2. The things which you have heard from me, Timothy... So, Paul is the discipler. That's one generation of discipleship. Timothy, the things you've heard from me in discipleship, that's two generations. That's Paul and Timothy. Two generations of discipleship. But he goes on. It doesn't stop there. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Timothy, entrust these things to faithful men. Timothy, in turn, you disciple other men. So that's Paul. That's one generation. Timothy, that's two generations. The disciples of Timothy, that's three generations. Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So that's the fourth generation. So there are four generations of discipleship in 2 Timothy 2.2. And that's how God intends, multiplying ourselves. It's not one-dimensional. So Paul was an exemplary model. The methods of discipleship, Christ's teaching and example. Let's go on to number five. And this kind of fills in the balance, uh, I think, mistakes in discipleship. Because mistakes are often made. They're out there in the church. I've been involved in some of them. I went to churches that had wrong views of discipleship unbalanced views and practices of discipleship. Maybe you have similar back, but here are some of the most common mistakes I've seen regarding discipleship. One, actually, that is pretty prominent, maybe you're not aware of it, but churches and Christians and pastors that don't believe discipleship is in the Bible. I was at a church in Texas. I was, at an, el- I was an elder at a church in Texas where the elders did not believe in discipleship. And I was oblivious to this. I was kind of new to the church, and the senior pastor came to me and said, you know what, at the next elders meeting, we need to ask, we need to study together the Bible as elders, and we need to study the issue of discipleship. I go, what do you mean? We need to 
First of all, define it and see if it's in the Bible. I said, well, of course it's in the Bible. What are you talking about? Everybody knows this. Everybody believes this. He said, no, you'll be surprised. I, I didn't believe it. So then we go to the elders meeting, and the senior pastor, he, he opens up the discussion, and there's six elders there, and he writes the word discipleship on the board, and he says, tonight I would like to talk about discipleship from the Bible. And one of the key elders just shouted out and said, well, that's not in the Bible. And then I about had a heart attack. I was like, whoa. He was right. We need to talk about this. And it, it didn't go well for 90 minutes. Um, we were not convincing. And the conclusion was from the majority that discipleship is a novel concept. It's an American idea. It's superficial. It's shallow. It's not in the Bible. As a matter of fact, the word discipleship is not even in the New Testament. That was the main argument. The word discipleship is not in the New Testament. It's not. The word discipleship. Disciple is. Disciples 269 times. But discipleship isn't. Make disciples is discipleship. But anyway, they held on to that argument. And so, and then I didn't last at that church for very long. But anyway. Um, but that's actually... A, I, and then when I left that church, I realized, wow, this is like a formal teaching that's being propagated in evangelical circles. I was not aware of that. So watch out for that one. Um, then other uh, mistakes. There are counterfeits to discipleship. Now, one of the goals to discipleship in the Christian community is befriending others and having a community of like-minded people. A community. Sometimes people pick a church because I'm trying to find community. Or they left the church because I couldn't find community. What does that mean? Well, that really they're just talking about developing relationships in the context of discipleship and Christian friendship. That's all. And there are counterfeits to discipleship in the, in the Christian world and also in the secular world. Counterfeits to discipleship in the secular world might be because as human beings we're made in God's image and we are uh, inescapably social beings. So that's why people always around the world and forever gather in cliques. You can't eliminate cliques. It is impossible. That's how we were made. We're social beings innately. And so that's true in the unbelieving world. You've got cliques and community of people and that's not inherently a bad thing. God is a community of three. But the counterfeit in the secular world is where they want to find community in these little groups of people where you find your identity and where you are encouraged and you all are on the same page and you have the same goal and you're walking through life together and you're seeing life from the same perspective. And that can be in a lot of different jobs. Say you work at Google or Microsoft. Or, I mean, pick your IBM. It doesn't matter. Or you might have groups and they want you to find your identity in the group and you do what we say and you go and you believe what we believe and you find all your identity joy and uh, satisfaction in this community that's not in the church and many people i have family members who are in the in the banking industry and there's a group of people and they find their identity there and they're trying to find meaning of life there and they are discontent and said these are siblings of mine that i my heart is broken for them. And they're asking my advice and opinion. And how come I can't find meaning and purpose and security and like-mindedness and meeting my greatest longings? And I know the answer. You don't know Christ. You're not a Christian. And it's all superficial, inevitably, where you're chasing after the world. They don't get it. But that's true in the world, in these communities that don't satisfy ultimately. But it's also in the Christian world. Like, I taught at six different Christian schools. I saw this all the time. Where you were, there were people, including me, so committed to the Christian school, there all the time, teaching all the time. My identity, my purpose, my Christian fellowship was in the church or in the Christian school and not in my local church. And I saw that a lot. Where these committed, godly, 
wonderful Christians who work at this Christian school and they pour out all their blood, sweat, and tears into the school and they don't even go to church. Or they might attend a church. They're not involved. They don't know anybody at the church. They're not using their gifts in the church. And the priorities are wrong. That happens with uh, these extracurricular uh, Christian organizations as well. Same thing. Whether it's campus crusade or whatever, that's not a bad thing. But being involved in it where it becomes the priority over the church, that is not good. So we got to keep balance. Discipleship comes from the hub of the local church first. It's where it's got to be birthed and defined. A couple more. Um, one dominant one that I see is churches have this very formal, regimented discipleship program. And you are assigned a discipleship leader. This is your discipleship leader. Sign on the dotted line. You are in their group. You will meet two times a week. You will meet for an hour and a half. You will answer all of their questions. And every time they see you, they will confront you and say, did you have your prayer time? Did you read your Bible today? And make you feel really guilty? Whoa, I've been a part of that. It was burdensome. And over the course of time, I saw people who were all excited about these discipleship groups. And this is my discipleship leader. And here's what they, and then again and again and again, I saw people defecting, not just from the group, from the church and from the faith. It's like, whoa, because they were disillusioned. They were disappointed. They, they felt controlled. They felt manipulated. So we got to guard against that. So a discipleship relationship shouldn't be about control. One person controlling, lording it over another. It's okay to have a discipleship leader. There's got to be balance and it's got to be Christ-like and we can't lord it over people. And I would just encourage all of us to, again, follow Christ and the apostles' biblical model, trying to answer the two most basic questions. Who's discipling me? Who am I discipling? Is the Scripture and the Word of God regularly involved? Is prayer a part of Are they helping me grow in my relationship with Christ? It's probably a healthy thing to have more than one discipler in your life because that gives you balance and actually gives you protection because if you only have one who is I.I. captain, but if you have more than one and one discipleship leader says, well, I disagree with the, your other discipleship leader, that... That's a problem. So what does Scripture say? Well, with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him. He's the Master, Teacher, the Lord Jesus. And that's where it needs to start. If you don't know Jesus Christ, personally, you can, simply by, according to Scripture, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. Recognize that you are a sinner and that He is the only one that can forgive you of your sin by virtue of his death and resurrection. It says if you believe that and commit to that, then you shall be saved. And actually, once you become born again and a Christian, you are now a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this time together in your word as we seek to get back to basics and the basics of discipleship. Uh, thank you that you've given us clarity and a perfect model that is so graphic. The portrait painted in Scripture of the Lord Jesus Christ and His apostles and the truth of the Word of God that allows us with confidence to pursue this basic Christian discipline of discipleship. God, we need your help. Help us to continually lean on your guidance through the truth of your word, the indwelling Holy Spirit, and the power of prayer and the counsel 
of wise Christian friends. All for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.